Charlie Brown. I just say his name and you smile, right? The lovable, bald character from the Peanuts comic strip. Some of my favorite Peanuts comics are the ones with Charlie and Lucy. Lucy, the blunt opportunist who never misses a chance to showcase her superiority over her friends. Whether it's a football, a Halloween costume, or her taste in Christmas trees. One afternoon, Lucy calls Charlie over, and she is in one of her oft-pontificating philosophical-type moods. And she says, Charlie Brown, life is like a deck chair on a cruise ship. Some people set their deck chair facing behind, seeing everything that's gone. Some people, Charlie Brown, face their deck chair forward. They want to see all that's coming their way. On the cruise ship of life, Charlie Brown, which way is your deck chair facing? Charlie Brown looks back at her with this blank look on his face, and he goes, I can't even get my deck chair open. (laughs) You ever feel like that? Like no matter how hard you try, you pull and you pull and you pull. You can't get the deck chair open. You ever feel like that when it comes to prayer? I know I do. I think most of us do actually. Maybe you get a cup of coffee, you sit down at the kitchen table, close your eyes, open the Bible, and then the phone vibrates. Or maybe you're more ambitious. You get a pen and pencil out, an open journal, ready to record what God has to say to you that morning, and you realize, "Ah, I'm late. I got to get going. Or maybe your story is a little more painful than that. Maybe you've prayed so long and so hard for God to help you forget the pain of your past, but it keeps coming up, and you silently wonder if God enjoys reminding you about it. Maybe you've been praying for years for God to break through in an area of your life or to restore a fractured relationship, and he seems so silent. And so you wonder, is he even listening at all? Does that describe you? There are times when I feel like that. There are seasons when I pull and pull and pull and I can't get the deck chair open. And so we breathe this like heavy defeated sigh and we tuck the deck chair out of the way where nobody can see it, hang our head on with life. Well, this week is the first series in, or first of a series of sermons called Thy Kingdom Come. And as you might have guessed, it focuses on the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, five verses in Matthew 6, nestled among some of the most familiar teachings of Jesus. I've seen the Lord's Prayer etched on wooden plaques and hung over kitchen tables. I've seen it embroidered on Afghans and thrown over couches. The words are so familiar to us, almost to the point of blissful abstraction. But this is not a series on prayer. It looks like it, 
but it's not. This is a series about recovering a right view of and a deep hunger for God himself. This is about aligning our hearts, not adjusting our hands. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at the first phrase of the Lord's Prayer, just eight words, eight words that if pressed, you could probably recite just from muscle memory, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Familiar, right? These eight words are packed with richness, beauty, and depth. This short text answers two questions that I think are essential to unfolding the deck chair. And I really think they're the most important questions we could ask about prayer because we so often get them wrong. Here they are, they're on your outline. Who is God and who am I? Who is God and who am I? So if you got your Bible or if you wanna look up on the screen, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter six. We're gonna look at verse nine. Uh, It's super, super short. Here's what Jesus has to say. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Sounds quick, right? Sounds familiar. There's a lot in there. Here's the first thing that Jesus talks about is he wants us to understand who God is. And so this very first phrase, he begins the prayer with the words, our father. Now that sounds really familiar and common to us, but we need to back up and understand how shocking that word actually is. Consider Jesus's original audience. The images that define their view of God and their collective memory are nothing like a father. They know him as creator, whose fingers formed mountains and hands scooped out oceans. They know him as this unapproachable presence in the temple, this pillar of fire that held Pharaoh's army back while God's people passed through. This God is a sea splitter, a flood bringer, a kingdom toppler, an angel army commander. He's incomprehensible, unapproachable, irreducible, and wholly unrelatable. And now, here is this presumptuous carpenter's son named Jesus, who hangs out with fishermen, tax collectors, and prostitutes saying that you can call God Father. That would have been scandalous at best, heretical at worst. If you would have been there, you would have had this flare of anxiety rise up in your stomach as you watched for the rocks to fly. Because they can't believe what he actually said. You can call him Father? Are you kidding me? Most of us aren't that much different though. Most of us think of God a little bit like this. He's this gray bearded fellow in the sky who's often disappointed with us, sometimes accidentally kind, but usually a little distant. He might sound like Morgan Freeman or he might have this deep bass English accent voice. But in any case, he is very disappointed with me. This week, I saw something incredible, and I want to tell you about it. 
So Sunday afternoon, I got a text saying that Olivia Michaels was taken down to Altman. Now, if you know Olivia, Todd and Aaron's daughter, she is the sweetest person on the planet, and I don't think that's an overstatement. Olivia makes me smile so big. It doesn't matter how far apart she is from me in the lobby on Sunday morning. If Olivia, if Olivia sees me, it's like hug time. Hug, hug, hug. This is what Olivia does. She is warm, she is welcoming, and she is incredible. Last Sunday, she was taken to Altman with a temperature of 104. So I get down to Altman, and I knock on the door frame, and I kind of go in and pull back that curtain. Olivia's sitting there in, in the gurney with an IV in her arm, and a big soft teddy bear named Curly Bear, by the way. It's not Teddy. It's Curly Bear, I was instructed. Aaron stands next to Olivia, lightly brushing sweaty hair off of her forehead. Some things that moms just do perfectly. And then sitting next to her in the bed on a chair is Todd. Todd's holding Olivia's hand. And every once in a while, like, he'll run his fingers up and down her arm. And he'll say things like, hey, it's okay. You doing okay, honey? We're going to be home soon. She talks about she can't wait to get home to see Fergus, her puppy, which is the most incredible puppy in the universe, Olivia says. And Todd whispers these words to her that fathers say, things like, we're gonna be home soon. It's gonna be okay. You're doing real good, honey. I love you. That is a father. In its purest, most irreducible sense, that is what God wants to be for you. The book of Psalms says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. It says he will shelter you under his wings. He will quiet you with his love. He will exalt you or exalt over you with singing. You know God sings over you? That's not just romantic, that's biblical people. It's this tender, almost uncomfortably intimate image of God singing a lullaby over a restless child. We are helpless children in the hands of a loving father. Olivia got to go home Monday, all good. That's the first image that Jesus wants us to get, God as father. But then there's the second image marked by the second set of words. Our Father in heaven. And this is the second image of God. He is king. He is king. When we started this prayer, we're affirming our childlikeness. It's this sweet, tender image. And then we're catapulted into this vision of God that's honestly a little bit jarring if we're thinking about it. Our Father, like, bam, in heaven. It's this uncomfortable juxtaposition for which we have no human relationship like it. Our Father in heaven. The theological space between those two phrases is a chasm. Our Father in heaven. We have a sovereign creator king 
who is Lord over microscopic diatoms. You know what diatoms are? They're these little things in the bottom of rivers that scientists only discovered in the 18th century. We didn't even know they were there before then. And there's trillions of these things in the bottom of every little river. He's Lord over the diatom. And he's God over the universe, these far-flung stars that shine only because he gives them permission to. This is our king, and that ought to cause us to shake a little bit. We don't tremble enough when we think about these things. Charles Meisner, who wrote a biography on Albert Einstein, made a comment, and I want to read it to you. It's pretty insightful. Here's what he says. The design of the universe is very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that's why Einstein had so little use for organized religion, although he strikes me as a basically very religious man. Now get this. This is the hard part. He must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined, and they were just not talking about the real thing. Isn't that a terrible indictment about the way most of us think about our God? Not big enough. I believe that low views of God contribute more to atheism than high views of self. It's nourishing for our soul to muse on the doctrine of God's sovereignty because it reminds me of my seemingly insignificant part in this whole creation. And then I'm thrown back into the reality that I am loved. I mean, what kind of a God is this? Incidentally, it's why that lyric, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God is actually a good one. Like, I, I struggled with that word at first. Reckless? I'm like, really? Reckless? Isn't that a, a bit too glib? From my perspective, as a bundle of sin and regret and mistakes and insecurity, I wouldn't waste one drop of blood redeeming Brandon Marshall, and he emptied his entire son. It reminds me of a very famous old hymn, right? Charles Wesley. He says this, he says, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Like, really? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? It's this like, do you even know what you're doing? Me? What God is this glorious and this good? I remember when they were old enough because I couldn't wait. Mandy and I got all the kids together and we sat in the boys' room on the floor. They had their Star Wars blankets, their pillows. We had one light on and we started to read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. How many of you guys have read that book ever, right? Parents, if you haven't, it's not too late. Grandparents, if you haven't, buy it. Find your grandkids, read this book, okay? There's this scene early in the book where Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy brush through the coats. They comb their way through the pine needles, and they find themselves in Narnia. Almost from the time they arrive, they've heard whispers of this mysterious king called Aslan. But they don't know much about him. 
And there's this paradoxical feeling of awe and dread, but at the same time, closeness and kinship. As they're wandering through the snow-covered woods, they're discovered by Mr. Beaver, who takes them back to his home. While Mrs. Beaver brews tea and toast, the nervous children talk about this mysterious king, and here is their conversation. I want to read it to you. Is Aslan a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan a man? Said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Our comfort is not in the fact that our God is safe. Our comfort is in the fact that our God is good. We do not serve a quaint God who embroiders cushions with Christian-sounding poetry. Do not reduce him to small-minded sentimentalities. Jesus did not mean for us to have a quaint vision of God. He is our king and he is sovereign. So, we're four words in. Four words, just four. Our father in heaven. And that presents us with this phenomenal tension. Is he a father or is he a king? Which is it, right? We live in the middle of this tension and that's okay because good theology makes for great tension. Here's the trick. When we reach that tension, some people throw up their hands and say, see, I refuse to believe in a God that I don't understand. I'm out. Other people say, yes, a God I don't understand. I'm in. The cynic sees theological tension as a weakness. The adopted child sees theological tension as a cause for worship. More on that in a minute. It's up to you. I'm with the latter. If you have a God you can understand, you need a new God. These images do not compete. They complement. So here's why this matters, okay? We're going to spend a couple of minutes addressing this tension because if we refuse to accept that God is both father and king, we will end up with a skewed view of ourselves. We will tend to view him as either too close or too distant. Living in this tension actually helps us answer the second question, who am I? And we'll get to that. But before we do, we need to understand what we're not. What do these skewed views look like? In my experience, people often take one of three of these views and see if any of them resonate with you. Here's the first one. The first skewed view that we have is that we are the spoiled prince. The spoiled prince. We're talking about prayer um, this week a lot as a staff, and Micah brought this one up. 
And so I think it's brilliant, and I want to pass it on to you. We act like the spoiled prince when we come to God entitled. Feeling like he owes me an explanation for something. If I'm honest, there's plenty of times when I do this. Here's what it sounds like. God, you promised me. Or, God, I followed you and my life is actually getting worse. This is terrible. Or, God, you said that if I followed you, you'd be with me and I feel alone. Why the silent treatment? Here's the scary thing about each of those ideas. Each of them carry the subtle indictment with them that God is not good. He may be a father, but he is holding out on you. He may love you, but he's keeping something from you. He's not telling you the whole truth because he is not good. Does that remind you of any other scene in scripture? A very gullible couple in a very perfect garden. It's the same sin centuries later. And if you're acting like the spoiled prince, here's what you need to hear. You cannot receive God's fatherhood with a pointed finger. Lower your pointed finger, open up your hands. God wants to give you the gift of his fatherhood, but he will only do it on his terms. Stop acting like a spoiled prince. You are a son or a daughter adopted by the king, and he wants you to act that way. Here's the second one, second skewed image of ourselves, the shoe gazer, like, like this, like shoe gazers, okay? Shoe gazers, this is the opposite extreme. This is when we come to our father believing that we are an inconvenience and a problem. Sounds like this. Oh, God. I screwed up again. I'm so sorry. Oh, man, I, I disappointed you, and I'm so sorry. I want so bad to make you happy, and I'm such a loser, God. How can you even stand me? Oh, I want to make you happy. I'm so sorry, God. It'll never happen again. I know in a room this size, there's a good chance that a lot of you don't have a good view of the word father. Maybe your father was absent. Maybe he hurt you. Maybe he drifted through life and was just preoccupied with his own agenda. Or maybe you had a father who was only happy when you performed well. And so this notion of an unconditionally loving father who loves you no matter what sounds too good to be true. And so you enter into his presence with your head hung low, barely able to scrape up enough belief to call him father. And so my word for you is this. Let him lift your head. Let him love you. The startling good news is that God expects more failure from you than you expect from yourself, and he loves you anyway. The battle is over. He has won, and he has invited you in to celebrate. You are a delight to him. Let him love you. So there's a third one. The spoiled prince, the shoegazer, and the runner in the hallway. 
the runner in the hallway. I think this one is probably more true than we want to admit. You don't come in entitled. You don't come in defeated because you don't come in at all. You are too busy. And so while you're out running through life, you glance into your father's house and you shout up a quick, hey, how's it going? I'm good, great. Can I borrow 20 bucks? Thanks. You don't sit on his lap. You don't hear from him. He has been reduced to the mechanism that makes your life run. If you're the runner in the hallway, here's my word for you. Stop. Repent of your independence. Don't sacrifice the eternal on the altar of the temporary. Here's why and why I fear the sin of busyness in my own life. Over time, you will eventually lose your affection for your father. And when you lose your affection for your father, your relationship with him will cool and dwindle like a spent match that dissolves into a silent wisp of smoke. It would be a terrifying thing to reach heaven only to find its host a stranger. The spoiled prince, the shoegazer, and the runner in the hallway. Here's what I want us to see about all these. Each of these false identities are really built on misconceptions about God, okay? The spoiled prince enters in too casually because he believes that God is his equal. The shoegazer enters in too fearfully because he believes that God is his oppressor. The runner in the hallway doesn't enter in at all because he believes that God is non-essential, And so the question here for us this morning is not, do you pray? Wrong question. Easy answer there. Do you pray? But the right question, what do you believe about God? And that's a question that only you can answer. Now, I need to say something here before we move on. There's some of you today in here who only know God as your creator. And so this joy and freedom of calling him father and king, like, mm, nope. You may come to church. You may occasionally pray. You look great. But you don't know him. And if that's you, let me say this. God has already made the first step. He has sent his son, Jesus, to bridge this impossible chasm that separates us from him so that we could be called sons and daughters. So if I'm not any of those things, what am I? Here's your answer. What am I? Who am I? I am a worshiper. That is your identity. This last phrase, hallowed be your name, this phrase is the exhale. It's the exhale of my mind thinking on something that's too great for me, okay? Sounds like this. God, you are my father. You are tender. You love me. You know me. You're okay being intimate with me. You're my father. And God, you're my king. You're sovereign. You're over all. You command stars and you see me. You know me. God, who is like you? Hallowed be your name. It's this exhale of living in this tension, which is why we need to stay there. What does hallowed mean, right? We don't say that very often. 
rightfully so, because it's a weird word. It's a very old word. It's from Middle English, and it means to set apart or to see something of great value. So Jesus is saying that we need to see something of great value. We need to hollow something. Well, what's he talking about? God's name. Well, what's that mean? <laughs> now, a name could mean a lot of things. Literally, it could mean like Bob, Sue, Joe, Stacy, right? But a name can also mean a reputation. So, by way of illustration, if I say the name Rockefeller to you, you associate that with wealth, okay? If I say the name Kennedy to you, you associate that with politics. If I say the names Lennon McCartney, to you. You associate that with musical genius, which by the way, there is no arguing about that. So we're clear. A name means a reputation. And so what Jesus is saying, let's put these ideas together here. The way that we think about our God, we ought to be so overwhelmed with the fact that he is our father and our king that we live our lives extending his reputation, hollowing his name as someone who has surpassing value. Put this another way, simply. Worship is the inevitable lifestyle of someone who sees God correctly. Worship is the inevitable lifestyle of someone who sees God correctly. This is a missionary prayer, saying, God, you are so good, you are so good to me, I enjoy you so much. I want everybody to get in on this. You live like that? I mean, really. You don't get to enjoy God and keep him to yourself. It doesn't work that way. It's great that you love God as father and worship him as king, but if you aren't actively extending that love to those who don't know him, you are missing the point of the Christian life entirely. This is a very important thing for us to get a hold of before we go any further in this prayer. The biggest obstacle with worship today is not style, it is not musical preference because those things characterize 20 minutes of your life on a Sunday morning. The biggest obstacle to worship today is a small view of God because God is after worshipers first. You were created for one purpose, to make much of Jesus. And I'm willing to bet that you feel it, you know it. Because after a while of wallowing around in the slop pool of myself, I feel dirty. The taste of my own glory sours my stomach. When you realize that living a life that is built around you is profoundly unsatisfying, you open yourself up to the possibility of living your life for something greater. And that is what worship is all about. It's not about music, not about words, not about tunes or style. It's about living a life that says, not me, you. Not my will, your will. I'm done. You take over. All worship begins with the crucifixion of self which is why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
That's why discussions about worship style are such a profound waste of time. It's aiming at the wrong target. That discussion addresses your opinion as a Sunday morning song singer rather than your identity as a lifelong worshiper of a sovereign king. One of those is of profound importance. One is profoundly trivial. It's your life that makes God's name holy in your neighborhood. It's your life that makes much of Jesus at the grocery store. It's the way you honor the woman next to you at the gym. It's the way you treat your table server with dignity and respect. It's the way you love your enemies that makes much of Jesus and extends his reputation to those who don't know him. Don't aim at the wrong target. You are meant to make much of Jesus. Don't let the enemy distract you by something far less satisfying. Here's an idea, North Canton Chapel. Let's grab a hold of this thing together, can we? What would it be like if we couldn't keep quiet about everything we see God doing and turned everything into a launching pad for worship? It's like God's people in Isaiah's day when they said, your name and your renown are the desire of our hearts. Can you say that? Like the, the desire, the top of my list is I want people to know Jesus because what that means is there's a long list of stuff I choose not to care about. Or it could be like Jeremiah who says, if I try to keep this in, it's like a fire shut up in my bones. I can't hold it in. Have we forgotten what bone fire feels like? God, would you bring that back? What would your family gatherings look like if you started talking about how God never lets you down, about how faithful he is? That was your discussion. What would your neighborhood look like? How would that transform if you sought out that family who was having a hard time and then you threw a big party when that dad finally got a job? We are worshipers first. What if we, the 900 people who fill this room, we're set free to worship God with the other 10,000 minutes of the week rather than just the 80-minute slice of Sunday morning. Everyone you see is a worshiper. They are worshiping something. They can't help it. It's how we're made. They are making someone's name great. The only question is, what'll it be? What do you want to magnify? Your choice. It's your life. Every time you worship an unworthy idol, politics, the next drink, money, a few stolen moments on your phone, your spouse, your wife, your kids, your job, your 401k, every time you worship an unworthy idol, you tell a watching world that your hope is in something else other than Jesus. Small view of God. Look at where you spend your time. Look at how you spend your money. Pay attention to what you daydream about. You could be an idolater and you don't even know it. And we are. I feel like we keep coming back to this a lot recently. The point of church is not to make people comfortable, but to make much of Jesus. Why? Because that's all I got. Hallowed be your name. So I've got one point of application before we 
welcome the band back on and sing. I've got one point of application. Give up. Give up. Aren't you tired of chasing that thing that you will never get a hold of? Isn't it exhausting? Give up. Jesus said, come to me. Come on, weary, heavy laden, burned out, exhausted. Come to me and I will give you rest. This is Jesus' invitation. So as the band comes back on in a little bit, uh, we're gonna sing another song and I wanna encourage you to do something. Um, And this may be stretching for some of you, but as we sing this next song, I want you to sing it with a posture of open hands. I want you to stand and to put your hands out, palms up. And this gesture does, I promise, no one's gonna think of you weird if we're all doing it, okay? This gesture is two things. One, it is a gesture of release. It's saying, okay, God, I surrender, take it. Like, I don't know what to do with this thing anymore. Take it, get it off of me. God, you're good, you take it from me. But it's also a posture of receiving, saying, okay, God, you're good. You can handle this and you wanna give me something and I wanna hear it from you. It could be a renewed vision of God as your father. It could be a higher vision of God as your king. It could be he wants to speak to you about your identity as a worshiper and you wanna receive it from him. So that's my prayer as we sing together in this next song that he would speak to you in your spirit. So that's the first eight words. First eight words, and we got a lot more to go. My prayer is that as we get into the Lord's Prayer, that you would continue to wring this thing out like a saturated washcloth, because there is so much goodness in here. I can't wait to see what God does. Let's worship together, can we? Would you stand? God, you are good to us. God, we just declare that you are our Father, and we know it. You know us. You know how many hairs are on our head? You know what we're gonna say before we say it? You're comfortable sitting next to us as our Father. And God, we declare that you are our King. You are above us. You are holy. There's nothing that we add to you. And so God, we accept that we are simply worshipers. At the end of the day, that's all we really want is to reflect back to you how good you are. So would you, by your spirit, work in us, free us to do that. Father, we love you, and we're so grateful for all that you have done for us on our behalf. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.